Let's uh, turn to the uh, back of our hymnal to the larger catechism, please. And we will look at question 110 and 111. 110, it's found on the end of page 953. And then it will go over question 111 at the top left of 954. 953, 953, question 110. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The more to enforce it. The answer, the reasons annexed to the second commandment, the more to enforce it contained in these words. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments are besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us his fervent zeal for his own worship and his revengeful indignation against all false worship as being spiritual whoredom, accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him, and threatening to punish them unto divers generations, and esteeming the observers of it such as love him and keep his commandments, and promising mercy to them unto many generations. Then question 111, which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 119, letter I. Psalm one hundred. 19, letter I. You treated your servant with grace. As pledge in your word I received Teach knowledge and judgment to me Because your commands I believe Before my affliction I strain But now I will hold to your word are good and you do what is good. Teach me your commandments, O Lord. The insolence near me with lies. I keep your law with my heart. Their hearts are unfeeling like man. I love what your precepts impart. It could have suffered distress, 
that I might be taught your commands. For your law is more precious to me than silver and gold in my hands. Well, if you have your Bible with you tonight, our text is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. You also uh, can turn in the back of the hymnal. To page 927, 927, chapter 12 of the Confession of Faith, entitled Of Adoption. Let's, uh, let's join together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we call you Father and pray that we might delight in that title that belongs to you and to the title of sons and daughters that belongs to us through Christ. Now, Lord, may the Holy Spirit help me by giving me the liberty that I need in the preaching that the things that are said here would be clear and could be understood by the youngest of our children, but also, Lord, could be appreciated by the most mature of our saints. And so, Lord, we ask for help and clarity, blessing, power, unction, and great joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. And let's uh, begin reading at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And then also chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 927, section 1. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace, with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, 
protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Amen. Well, we had a tough sermon this morning, right? And so now uh, we have a comforting sermon tonight. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So whereas we were warned about falling away uh, and hearing the word of God and tasting of the powers of the ages to come and yet walking away from it all, uh, here is a comforting portion of scripture tonight where God reaffirms for us that we are the children of God in Jesus Christ. So we want to talk tonight about the subject of adoption. Now the first thing I want to do is talk about how justification and adoption are compared, but also how they are contrasted. If you notice, in chapter 11, we talked last week about the doctrine of justification. Remember, boys and girls, we talked about how the, jo- the doctrine of justification is God telling you that you are righteous in his sight. That is, God is happy with you. He's pleased with you uh, because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore God does two main things for you. Number one, he takes away all your sin. Number two, he gives to you a righteousness that inherently belonged to his son, Jesus Christ, but is given freely to you. So God justifies you. You receive that by faith in the Son, and it's yours instantaneously. The moment you believe, you are righteous. So you are righteous presently, right now. You don't have to wait for heaven in order to be righteous. You are righteous in the sight of God. It's an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to somebody else, but is given to you right now. So there is no outstanding judicial warrant against you. There is now no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. All is pardoned and forgiven, and God is absolutely 100% satisfied with your standing before him. There is nothing uh, outstanding that would warrant any future judgment against you. Christ has satisfied every demand of the law of God perfectly, and that obedience, passive and active, is given freely to us. So that is the doctrine of justification. Now, um, the doctrine of adoption uh, is, has many similarities with justification, but it also has some very important differences. One commentator said that the gospel could be compared to natural light. You think about natural light from the sun, boys and girls, and if you've ever played with a prism, you know that if you angle the prism just properly towards the sun, that on the other side of the prism, you'll see a spectrum of colors. And the gospel works similarly. That is, the light of the gospel uh, filtered through the prison can be broken into multifarious colors. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 speaks about the manifold grace of God. So one of those colors that is embedded within that light of the gospel is the color of adoption. And last week we saw a different color, that of justification. 
Now, they are similar in that both your adoption and your justification are received by faith in Jesus Christ. You must receive this gift from God with the outstretched empty hand of faith, holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are adopted by grace and by grace alone through the instrumentality of faith. So herein lies something of the sweetness of Christianity. For while one theoretically could be justified by faith and then put out, kind of, if you will, on the street, the gospel goes further than that. The gospel not only pardons you and gives you the righteousness by which you stand before God and his law, but then also it takes you into a familial relationship with God and with God's people. That is, to put it in another way, J.I. Packer, probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century and early 21st century, said that the essence of Christianity is knowing God as your father. And uh, that's, you know, coming from J.I. Packer, we should take that, I think, quite seriously. Um, that is uh, to know our adoption, to know that we are the children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ here. God is pleased to bring you into his family, boys and girls. God adopts you, not only saves you, justifies you, but gives you a home. He makes a home for the lonely, says the psalmist. God brings in the outcast and brings them safely into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, also, another similarity with between doctrine of justification and the doctrine of adoption is that they are not subject to degrees, okay? We talked about this last week. Remember that nobody in this room is more justified than somebody else in this room. All are justified by the righteousness and work of Jesus Christ. And nobody, nobody is more justified than the most, you know, put your Christian hero out there who's living, you know, no, he is not, she is not more justified than you. Same way with adoption. Adoption, according to the Shorter Catechism, is an act of God's free grace wherein we are received into the number and have the right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Here again, not subject to degrees. Everyone equally is adopted into the family of God. No favorites with the Father, okay? But that we are all children of God. Listen to a few verses here to support that. The first one is 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John 3, 1. John, you know, makes much of the family of God. So if you're ever wanting to study more on that, look at John in the gospel and the epistles. John, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. In his gospel... John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become what? Sons of God, even to them that believe 
on his name. So John, notice here, John's theology always takes us beyond justification into being the children. So does the Apostle Paul. If you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul takes us about beyond justification. Justification, of course, is one of the great themes in the book of Romans uh, that, that we, how you know, shall we be saved but through faith alone in Jesus Christ and declared righteous. But notice that Paul in Romans 8 <clears throat> goes beyond justification. He says in verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It's the Apostle Paul in Romans who says that the Spirit enables us within to cry, Abba, Father. Now, how do we come into the family of God? We come into the family of God by the work of the Spirit, first of all. That is, regeneration must always precede our adoption. Just as regeneration precedes faith and justification, regeneration, or to be put in another way, to be born again, you must be born again, and by that new birth, you come into the new family. We uh, are, uh, again, uh, the children of God. As many as received him, John says, to them... He gave them the power to become the sons of God. So we must, how do you receive him? How do you receive Christ? Through the new birth, by the Spirit of God. God gives you the faith, you put it in Jesus Christ, and then you become the child of God. This is what we call the ordo salutis. It's just a Latin phrase. It's two Latin words simply meaning the order of salvation. Logically, how does this progress? We are born again of the Spirit. God gives you a new birth. Out of that new birth, you put your trust in Christ, and you are received into the family of God as you trust Him. Listen to what Acts chapter 17 says in verse 28 and 29. For in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his, as Jesus, this is speaking of the Father, for we also are his offspring. <clears throat> Excuse me. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. So here Paul acknowledges that creatures made in the image of God and all humanity by creation are children of God in one sense. Now, this is important that you understand this. There is a sense that all made in the image of God are also children, but not redemptively so, but by way of their humanity. Now, I, I want to say this because you have liberals who want to say, well, we're all children of God no matter what we believe. Okay? But then you have, I think, some evangelical Christians who overreact to that and say, no, no, you're not a child of God, but only through Christ. And I think the Bible actually says it's a little bit more nuanced. That is, we are, by way of creation, children of God as image bearers of God. But what we're talking about is adoption into the family of God, and that comes by grace through faith. So we're not talking about something that comes simply by way of 
creation or generation. But by region, what we're talking about tonight is regeneration. Does that make sense? Have I lost any of you out there on that? So that there is a, a sense that people made in the image of God, in one sense can be called a child of God, but not so with regard to adoption. Okay, Adoption is the work of God's spirit, working within a person, giving them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ here. So Paul, when he is preaching um, at the Areopagus, he acknowledges that. And, and that's important because I think we do want to find common ground with people as we try to uh, work with them in terms of apologetics and evangelism. And so Paul is a shrewd fisher of men here. So he's finding the common ground as image bearers, but then he goes beyond to preach the gospel uh, to them. Redemptively, as I said, we are not all children of God, though. It is those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you some verses to support this. For example, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are uh, persecuting him, you are of your father, the devil. Okay, <laughs> so that wouldn't go over too well today, you know, in the general audience, just as it didn't in Jesus's day. All right, you are of your father, the devil. Yes, you're a child of God by nature because you're made in the image of God, but what? You are at enmity with God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be persecuting Jesus. But because they are persecuting Jesus, they show themselves redemptively to be the children of the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Your, your father was a liar, murderer, so are you the offspring of the devil. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. <clears throat> Romans 5, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now notice here, Paul is saying, again, by nature, we are what? We are enemies of God. Even though we are image bearers because of the fall, we are at enmity against God, and it is only through Jesus Christ that there is any reconciliation now. That's the way we become true children of God, through faith in Jesus alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this. Now listen to this, Ephesians 2, 3. <clears throat> Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He's saying formerly, before we knew Jesus Christ, what were we doing? We were living for sin. We were living for ourselves. We were living contrary to a love towards God and our neighbor. He says, he goes on, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he says, we were by nature children of what? Wrath. He says, we by nature we're children of wrath, just as others. So I want to make that clear to us all, uh, because there, there are these, you can fall off to the right and you can fall off to the left here on this doctrine, okay? And we want to stay in between those two views. We want to acknowledge the created ordinance of men and women, boys and girls, made in the image of God, and thereby something of a child 
of God in that sense, but not redemptively. We are also children of wrath by nature because of the fall. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father but by me. So how does anyone have God as Father? Only through faith in Jesus Christ. So without Christ, God is not a Father, and thereby, if God is not a Father, then you are not a child of God, uh, uh, unless you repent and believe on Jesus Christ, His only Son. Now, adoption, like justification, is a twofold process. Justification, you'll remember, I gave you the illustration, kids, you remember that you, you played all day in the summer sun and you needed a bath and then you needed new clothing, all right? Before you could go to bed, you have to have the day of uh, the day's dirt washed off and made clean, but then you need a new garment. You don't put on the old clothes after you've taken that bath or shower. You put on new clothes, and so justification is the forgiving of sins and the imputation of righteousness. Adoption is also a twofold process. Um, listen, to, one commentator says this, the old authority under which the individual stood had to be broken. That is, we were by spiritually children of it, the devil. That relationship must be broken. The chains binding us to the evil one because we listened to him in the garden, that dominion has to be severed. Then, after the dominion to the evil one is severed, we are formally brought under the new authority, who is Jesus Christ. So legally, the established dominion of sin has to be ended, and, uh, and then comes the way of adoption. Uh, or being brought into the new family. Here again, another commentator, the legally established dominion of sin must be broken. Sin, through the law, claims a legal right to dominion over man because by his disobedience he has forfeited his liberty. That is, the, the, the law and the natural man, and the natural man before that law is enslaved to the condemnation of the law. All right? The law is not your savior in, in nature. Okay? The, the law is your tutor to what? Forsake the law as your hope and go to Christ as your hope. Okay? That relationship to the law needs to be broken. It's broken through faith in Christ. Once you come to Christ, that relationship to the law changes now. Now the law is your friend in Christ. Now the law becomes the train track for your train to run on. But when you are without Christ, the law stands in condemnation against you. So the power of sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, the power of sin is in the law. And the law condemns us and kills us. Look at uh, Romans chapter 7 in your Bible. Romans chapter 7, and starting at uh, verse 7, Romans 7, 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I'll give you about six verses here. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. So the problem isn't in the law. The problem is in us. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. You know, just to share with you something really interesting about that verse that I heard this year. I never heard this before. But have you ever asked yourself, why does Paul specifically mention coveting in this verse? And uh, I heard this from Dr. Ferguson, and I don't know where he was speaking, but Ferguson believes that Paul is speaking autobiographically here. And the reason he goes to coveting uh, is he's talking about back in his own life when he was an unbeliever, that the point in which he was convicted as a sinner was on the 10th commandment. And you say, how and when was Paul convicted of coveting? And Ferguson's theory is it goes back to the stoning of Stephen and, and that he coveted what Stephen had, the faith and the joy uh, that Stephen had even while he was being persecuted and stoned to death. He realized in that moment everything for which he had been working for, striving for, living for, wasn't a reality in his life. When he compared himself to all the other Pharisees, he was excelling in Judaism uh, beyond all his peers. And he, he had a pride in that. And then once all it took was seeing a true Christian, a true believer in Jesus Christ, and he coveted what Stephen had, and that ended up enraging him. And he ended up holding the coats so that they could kill him. It was a really interesting interpretation of that, but that's a little side for you there. Let's keep looking here. But sin, look at verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. So Paul is saying here that the law uh, had the effect when it met with his unregenerate state caused him to sin all the more. It didn't deliver him from his sin. It made his sin worse. It aggravated his sin. For apart from the law of sin, you guys know this, don't you? You know, you, which, who out here has not seen the cow fence? It says, you know, electric fence, and hasn't thought, man, I'd like, I'd like to touch that. You know, <laughs> and just see, you know, how bad is it? I mean, you, you, you feel that provocation, don't you? You know, you, you see the sign, and you're like, oh, let's see. Oh, maybe not for you. It works that in me. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to be, excuse me, proved to result in death for me. So Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with the law. It's just when the unregenerate sinner meets with the law, it ends up killing him. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin 
in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would have to become utterly sinful. So what adoption here teaches is that that old relationship, that old authority between sinner and law has to be broken. The dominion of it has to be broken so that a new legal relationship can be brought about. And so that you can be brought out from under the law into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God inaugurates us into a new relationship with himself. This comes by way of adoption. You have a new relationship to the law. You have a new relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have all now the, the rights and privileges as true children of God. You are not, therefore, without a father. You are not uh, uh, left an orphan, but we are brought in to this familial relationship with both one who is both creator but also redeemer. Your father is your creator, and you know him as such, but now you know him as more than a creator. By nature, you knew him only as creator, but now you know him as redeemer as well. You are privileged. This new status is a privilege for you. You are a privileged child, and therefore we should reflect that with a life of happiness and gratitude. Um, the Galatians, if you go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, why did the apostle have to tell this church this verse? Have you ever thought about that? Why does the apostle have to remind these Christians that they are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, they, they needed evidently to be reminded of this reality. The doctrine of adoption had not sunk deeply enough into their lives and their thinking. Now, what is the evidence of this? The evidence of this is that the Galatians had been contemplating the addition of circumcision into their theology. Now, isn't that interesting that Paul would put these two things together? I don't know how many people you know as Christian counselors who, facing a problem like this, where people are tempted to go back under the ceremonial law, and he says, your problem is you don't appreciate adoption. <laughs> the, and yet, I think Paul really is getting to the heart of the issue here. The Galatians were susceptible to the Judaizers. Why? Because they were not confident in their status before God. They were not confident that they had all that they needed through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so the Judaizers came into the congregation and they began telling them that they stood still outside of God's favor and family, judicially and familially, until they submitted themselves to the doctrine of circumcision, to the old ceremonial law. And this was very unsettling to Gentiles. 
And Paul, what Paul does in Galatians, he has to reaffirm to them that they are in the family of God and in the family of Abraham, who is the father of who? The Jews. That is, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into the greater covenantal family of the Lord. God does not have two families, as dispensationalists sometimes lead you to believe. That he's got family of Jews and he's got a family of believing Gentiles. There is one family of God in Christ. Some from the Old Covenant and many from the New Covenant. There is, to put it another way, to use the analogy that Paul uses in the New Testament, there is one tree into which you and I as believers in Christ have been engrafted. It's not a new and second tree. We who were wild olive shoots have been glued into that old tree of God's covenant family. That we who have been baptized have clothed ourselves with Jesus Christ and we are now sons and daughters of Abraham. This is what the Galatians forgot. They forgot who they were. Now this can happen to you and me too, is that we can forget who we are in Jesus Christ. And when we forget who we are, when you forget that you're a child of God, all kinds of various terrible things can happen. Now how many of you kids, before you went out to play or before you went out to some event, you were reminded by your parents who you were? Remember who you were. I had a friend, and he was a PK, and his dad always used to tell him, remember whose son you are. <laughs> now, I think he said that not just because he was a PK, but that means pastor's kid, boys and girls, but also because he was a part of the what? The family. And therefore, certain expectations were upon them. Uh, to use another illustration, it was once said that the queen, the former queen who late, lately died, she used to say to her kids, royal blood, royal manners. Royal blood, royal manners. What she's saying, she's saying, look, you are a part of an important family here of nobility, and you will conduct yourself with that kind of integrity. Okay? And... How much more so with the Christian family? Uh, when we forget that we are the children of God, then we become susceptible to bad behavior. The, um, the prodigal son, what happened? He forgot whose son he was, right? In fact, both of the sons forgot who their father was. It's not as though one son forgot who his father was, but they both did. It just manifested itself in different problems. But the problem in Luke 15 is that both the older son and the younger son are estranged from the father. The doctrine of adoption reminds us that we are not to be estranged from our heavenly father. That we are children of a heavenly father and therefore our life, our, our way, our conduct, the, the aura about us, is to have something of that heavenly breath as we go about this world. The world is supposed to know something, even if they don't fully comprehend what that something is. But there is to be something that is wonderfully different about the children of God. The Galatians had forgotten 
that. They lacked confidence of their acceptance with God. And when you do not feel like you have acceptance with God, it opens you to false teaching. The Galatian churches needed to be reminded that they were no longer under the tutor or tutelage of the law. Because of their faith, they had blossomed into a maturity as sons and daughters of God. You see, in the Old Covenant, they may have been children of God, but that adoption had not yet been fully realized because they were like young children who, yes, they are children of the Father, but the reality of that relationship has not been realized. Let's say you're a two-year-old child of a billionaire, okay? You haven't realized yet that that reality yet. They're not going to get turn the $2 billion over to you uh, as a two-year-old and let you loose in the candy store, okay? So the, 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 you are under this tutelage until you come of age. But when once Christ came that and the Spirit was given with the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we were brought to a new level of status. That status of being uh, part of the family of God is realized at a level that was not fully comprehended even in the Old Covenant. And so the Gentiles had to learn that they are no longer strangers. They're no longer aliens to the promises of God. They are no longer distant, but they have been brought near. Now, pastorally, there are many applications of the doctrine of adoption that can be applied. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, with whom the Father is well pleased, you, when you lay hold of Jesus by faith, you enjoy <coughs> that privileged status as Christ, not as a the Son, not as the eternal Son of God, but you do as one who in Christ is received into the family of God, as surely as Christ, that they may all be one, even what? Father, as you and I are one. That truth is very liberating to think that you are uh, no longer under some kind of uh, frown of God. Now, God may chasten, as we read in the confession, there are times of chastening, but that chastening is because of the Father's love for you. So let me ask you a few questions tonight about the doctrine of adoption. Number one is this. Have you forgotten who you are? Let's start there. Who are you? Are you in the family of God tonight? Are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in the heart, from the heart that you are a believer in Christ? If so, you need to know and be affirmed who you are. You are a child of the living God. You are not a stranger. You are not an alien. You are not an orphan. You are not separated from God. You have been brought near to Him. Not only have you received a sentence of pardon, but you've been called to the family table to sit down at the dinner table with Him. You will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That many will come from the north, south, east, and west and recline with the patriarchs. 
Let me ask you another question. Is there any sense of nearness of God in your Christian walk? Do you have any sense of the Father and the Father's love for you in your walk with the Lord? One commentator noted that the Father is like those dads that you might see at a park where the father is with his young son, his maybe toddler son, two, three-year-old son, and he puts him down and the son runs and the father is nearby, but then at moments the father will come and lift him up and embrace him and hold him and then put him back down. So it is that there should be from time to time an experience for the Christian of the Father's presence and nearness. That should not seem something that is foreign to us. Our Father delights in us, and we should expect a sense of that delight as we delight in Him as well. So my next question is, do you find any delight in God as your Father? Is there any sweetness to Christianity for you? Is there any consolation for your soul? Or have you, like the Galatians, turned your religion into something burdensome? The Galatians were on the verge of turning towards this odious doctrine of submitting themselves to something which Christ had already fulfilled. And thus binding themselves with something that they were never to be bound with, that they're Fathers were not able to keep, as Peter says in Acts chapter 15. You tonight are clothed with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. For, you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now let me read you a little John Calvin here. I'm running out of time, but let me give you some Calvin tonight. The greater and loftier the privilege is of being the children of God, the farther is it removed from our senses and the more difficult to obtain belief. That is, Calvin says, that the, the, the greater the privileges we have, and adoption is one of the greatest privileges we have. He says sometimes for the Christian, it is actually harder to believe. I mean, and, and you know, many, many of us maybe didn't have great fathers growing up. And so it becomes very difficult uh, to... Uh, appreciate what the scripture is saying about God as a father. However, Calvin says, though, this. He says, he, he therefore explains what is implied in our being united or rather made one with the Son of God. So as to remove all doubt that what belongs to him, that is what belongs to Jesus Christ, is communicated to us. He employs the metaphor of a garment. That is the Apostle Paul, speaking of verse 27, employs the metaphor of a garment. He says, you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. When he says that the Galatians have put on Christ, Calvin goes on. He says he means that they are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name and character of Christ. Now, boys and girls, how close are you to your clothing right now? Okay? How close are you to the shirt you're wearing? Pretty close, right? What 
John Calvin is saying is that's how close Jesus is to you when you believe in him. And that closeness of Christ means that the Father is that close to you. He says, they are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. Meaning you are so clothed with Jesus Christ, the Father looks at you as Christ. Now think on that for a moment. We are not Christ. We're not even close to being Christ in the sense of who we are inherently yet. But the Father views us in a way like he views his own eternal son. But what of having been baptized, they have put on Christ. Calvin again. Paul often treats the sacrament of baptism from two perspectives in the New Testament. He says, when dealing with hypocrites, in which the symbol merely awakens fleshly pride, that is people who say, oh, I'm good, I was baptized, you know, 20 years ago, and I've never gone to church since, but, you know, I've been baptized. He says, when, it deal, when, when dealing with people like that, Paul denounces their confidence in baptism as foolishness. But when dealing with believers who make proper use of the sign and the seals of grace, that is, you're a believer, you love Christ, and you make a proper use of baptism and the Lord's Supper in your life, he says this, he says he views them in connection with the truth they represent. Truth and symbol are associated, such is the case here. Calvin says that real grace is communicated in the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, that believers receive what is offered and communicated to you. But the wicked reject that grace and render the sacrament unprofitable to themselves. But their wickedness, says Calvin, in no way diminishes the faithfulness of God, nor the efficacy of the sacrament. So that, as we should say, remember your baptism... Um, I'm going to wrap it up here with this. The scripture tells the Galatians this important truth. They are the children of God. Knowing that you are one of God's true children through faith in Jesus Christ will help you in so many personal and practical ways through the various snares that come at us as Christians. The devil seeks to shake you from this foundation and this truth. But as you are tempted and tried by the evil one who seeks to overthrow you, if that were possible, you remind yourself and him that you belong to God. Not just as somebody who has only been justified, as if I could use the word only there, but as one who belongs inside the house of God.